The Start On Demand. On demand. Is Dustin Bufflin retiring? We were going to talk to Scott Billick from the Winnipeg Sun about Patrick Laine's comments that he recently made about wanting to play on the top line, but then during the course of the start, Bob McKenzie from TSN tweeted that Dustin Bufflin is seriously contemplating his future. So we'll get into that conversation. We'll also get into more violence in Winnipeg. A taser was used in a carjacking in South St. Patel, and a nine-year-old was held at knife point after his dad responded to an online ad to buy an iPhone. And the Couch Potatoes review Cirque du Soleil Amaluna, which led to the question, what's the best non-concert show you've ever seen? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Wednesday, September 18th podcast for The Start. We thought we knew why we were having Scott Billick of the Winnipeg Sun to talk hockey this morning. It had to do with Patrick Laine, his comments from Switzerland uh, about 48 hours ago. And Scott did a, a, a great job of of compiling uh, what happened and the response from the Jets leadership group, including Adam Lowry, uh, Blake Wheeler, and Paul Maurice. Uh, the headline, uh, Jets need more from Line and Line needs more from them. Well, it's funny what happens in a handful of hours, Scott. We've gone from that being the top story to this bombshell uh, from TSN's uh, Bob McKenzie suggesting that Dustin Bufflin's leave of absence, ha- absence pardon me, has to do with him contemplating his future in hockey. What do you know? What can you tell us? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of been the, um, you know, it, there's been no way to really kind of, you know, prove whether that's the case or not. And even Bob McKenzie says he hasn't really been able to get a hold of, you know, Dustin Bufflin or his agent or the Jets to even talk about. It. And that's kind of been, but it's been kind of the running theory amongst, uh, you know, media members here in, in Winnipeg covering the team, covering training camp. Um, because I mean, you know, you just—it's it, kind of a process of elimination here. I mean, there's—you know—the Jets say there's no health issues. They say that Buffalo's fine. Um, you know, and then he's not at camp. He, he was—he took in a couple skates prior to, uh, you know, the official camp opening up, and then just wasn't there. And so then you start to wonder. I mean, you know, while you can't, you know, necessarily prove it, I mean, that just becomes the running theory is he's having, you know, either second thoughts, especially after last season where. You know, a couple ankle injuries back to back there, and then he had his concussion as well. And so, um, you know, you, you look at kind of the Justin Williams situation in Carolina. Obviously, different because Justin Williams is a unrestricted free agent. But you just wonder, you know, the base age and stuff like that, and and just wondering if you know maybe he has, like Bob McKenzie said, maybe you know has lost his desire to play the game. Scott, um, and so yeah, yeah. Uh, Scott, it's a it's a big deal uh, to come forward with. Um, a pronouncement like this on uh, McKenzie's behalf. I mean, you hear trade yeah. rumors every single day. You mentioned the fact someone whispered that in uh, that's idea in my ear uh, four or five days ago that this is where we are with Buffalo. And there's no way I'm coming on the air to say that. So just maybe just give folks who don't spend a lot of time around the hockey world what a big deal it would be for Bob McKenzie to share this. Uh, this is this is different than a contract rumor or a trade rumor. Th- th- this is is a big deal this is someone's career potentially yeah of course and i mean it gives obviously credence to some of these rumors right i mean there's been all sorts of rumors you know how jets twitter can be when these things happen and there's 
not a lot of information coming from the club, obviously, because it is a it is a personal issue, and you don't kind of pry on personal issues too much. But yeah, when, when it comes from obviously an insider like Bob McKenzie, you know, it, it does give it, like I said, credence, and and so that is it is a big deal, of course, and and. And, 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 and then it becomes a, a real problem for the Jets. There's lots of implications of what this means. I mean, they've had an offseason where they've already lost three defend, defensemen. Um, and, and now, you know, you might be losing, uh, you know, perhaps your best defenseman. Um, you know, that's arguable with Josh Morrissey. But, you know, it, it, it's a huge blow to the team if that was the case. Um, and, you know, whether or not it helps them sign Patrick Liney or, or Kyle Connor with the extra money they might get if he was to retire is... I don't. I, I think that's uh, kind of a moot point in the fact that you would lose such a big name defense and such a core piece of your team, a guy who anchors your power play, a guy who you know is the guy who can you know turn it on physically and change the course of a game. It's it's hard to understate how much of a loss it would be um, if the Jets were to you know if Dustin Bufflin was to hang him up. So. Well, yesterday you were uh, listening to Paul Maurice and Blake Wheeler, Wheeler, the captain, talk about Patrick Liney, and I think Wheeler perhaps ended that press or that news conference saying, "You know, tomorrow there'll probably be another headline to dissect and <laughs> to read between the lines on." And here we are, sure enough, you know, twenty four yeah. hours later, doing that exact thing. Uh, if we can for a second to talk about the Liney question, do you see that in what you heard reading between the lines? It sounds like this will still go forward, or there are really two opposite sides here at play. Uh, in terms of his contract yes. negotiations, yeah, 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 I, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, you know, it's just you know, uh, there's uh, it seems you know, based on you know what I see, I mean, there, there's frustrations on both sides, and and you know, Liney had a down season last year, and 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 you know, it, it's hard to pay, uh, you know, want to pay a guy what he is probably worth given over a three year span of what he's been able to do on the ice, scoring 110 goals, that sort of thing. Um, but you, you never know, and 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 there's just I mean these are the things that are I mean Patrick Liney wants to play in the top line and you can't really blame him I mean any player in the NHL Paul Maurice talked about this every guy wants to play on that top line with with, with Mark Shifley and Blake Wheeler of course they do I mean that's just you know that's that's where you want to be that's where that's where the action is in terms of you know the most minutes the the best chance to score I mean that's where production comes I mean they they are an elite producing line in terms of points um, and. and I mean, I, I think both sides, again, I think Patrick Liney has legitimate concerns about his usage, his, his you know, not having, being given a center to play with. But at the same time, and like I wrote, I mean, Patrick Liney also has to play a certain style of game. And we only saw that from him um, in the latter half, not even the latter half, the latter stages of the season, you know, the, the March and, and, and into the playoffs where he, he started to play a different game. And, and that's a small sample size of, wondering if he's going to continue to do that. So it's just, uh, yeah, I, I think there's just, there, there, there's some things that need to be ironed out between both teams or both sides. Um, and I mean, that's obviously in my opinion, why um, there is still this contract impasse between the team and, and, and line a. surprising amount of honesty from line a with making that, those comments. We so often hear athletes answer questions and they give their canned answers because they're always answering the same kind of questions, but he, was it because maybe he was more familiar with this reporter or more comfortable? Like, why do you think he suddenly spat that out? Uh, you know, to be truthful, I mean, I think has always been kind of, um, I don't know, blunt is the word to use or not. I mean, I think Liney has often been brutally honest. He just always, it's often been about himself. I mean, his own game. And I think, you know, for this to come out, 
I mean, it's not like Patrick Lani hasn't said anything about his usage before he has. Um, and if you listen to Pekka Yolanen's, um, you know, comments after the fact, I mean, he provided some context about, you know, Lani wanting to still be in the pig. That's not really the issue. Um, but, you know, I think there's at the same time, there are, is uh, an element of posturing that goes on in these contract negotiations where, you know, you put something out there and, 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 and you know, you're, you're trying to get what you want um, to happen out there. You want, you're trying to get, you know, kind of how you feel out there. I mean, there, there's been posturing on all sides. You, you, we saw it with the Mitch Marner situation. I mean, it, it was rampant, right? And, and it, has, it hasn't played out like that with every RFA that has yet to sign or has signed, and it took a while. Um, but I, I think there's an element of that in it as well. Well, I think when Line A speaks, uh, people pay attention for the very reasons you both po- pointed out here, both Brett and Scott Billick from Winnipeg Sun joining us, talk about the Jets uh, here on the start. And this this whole idea that, that he often does say exactly what's on his mind, which I think which, uh, one of the things that's very refreshing about him as an individual mm-hmm. off the ice, but... As Winnipeggers, we are very sensitive to any sort of suggestion that maybe a player doesn't want to be here. Uh, we love when uh, Patrick Liney writes an article for The Athletic and says Winnipeg is good and make T-shirts about it. But here we are, you know, uh, several months later, and there are factions uh, in the Jets Nation are saying, hey, you don't want to be here, let's trade you. And so yeah. we need to temper some of that conversation, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, you know, it is, like you said, it, it's kind of part and parcel with this team. It, it's also pretty fresh with the Jacob Trouba situation. You know, he's obviously gone, and, and it was, you know, roughly three years where, you know, it was kind of the case that that was going to happen. I mean, you know, he asked for, Jacob Trouba asked for that trade, and then, you know, there's just nothing ever got done between them, and the belief just kept increasing that he wanted out of Winnipeg, and eventually he was gone. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't get that sense from Patrick Lyon. I, I think there's there's issues here that that can be worked out, and, and there isn't this decision that's already made. That, no, I want out of Winnipeg. I, I, again, I don't, I, I don't get that sense. That's that's my opinion. Um, but you know, just from you know listening to Lyon, this is the way he is. I mean, he talks about you know even with that Players Tribune piece that you brought up. I mean, he was very blunt about that piece, and you know, he said you know you know I haven't read it yet, or you know I you know I. And then some guy just came and talked to me and whatever. And it, it was just like, it, it doesn't really matter to him what it's about. He just kind of speaks what he speaks and that's what happens. And, and yes, as you know, if people fans, you know, they pay attention to everything that's said because, you know, yeah, the, the city and this team kind of has this, whatever reputation, you know, true or not that that players don't want to necessarily be here. I, I disagree with it. Sometimes when you see guys like Nick Ehlers or, or, or Josh Morrissey or Mark Shifley, Blake Wheeler, all signing contracts here. And then you wonder, well, is that really the case? I mean, so, yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't, I, I think a lot of things get overblown um, in this town sometimes. And a lot of part of it that has to do sometimes just with lack of information that's out there. I mean, the team is tight-lipped about a lot of things. Uh, and, but I mean, so, and, and then people are just left to kind of fester and, 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 and kind of, you know, create whatever, they think is the case. And, and that's just, it's just part of the way it is. I mean, this happens in most Canadian cities. Um, you know, it, it's just, it, it's part of the landscape and playing in a Canadian market. Scott Billick, thank you for this. We appreciate it. Solid debut on the start. Hopefully you'll join us again. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. 
So for months now, Winnipeg police have been telling Winnipeggers that carjackings are up in our city. In 2017, there were 50. In 2018, they more than doubled to 103. And police have said we're on pace to hit or surpass that total this year. On Tuesday, a woman in South St. Vital was tasered by a suspect who's still at large. As Constable Rob Carver explains, the carjacking actually started with a familiar phrase. Late in the evening, but in her car was a gorgeous night. Windows open, individual came up to her. He asked her for a cigarette, and, and, and we know as police that that question is often the precursor to a mugging. Uh, when my colleagues and I hear it, our hair stands up at the back of our neck. Asked her for a cigarette. Um, before she could react, he had his hands inside was getting her out of that vehicle and before she could even really put up much resistance he asked for her cell phone or demanded her cell phone he tased her Uh, we don't know exactly what the device is like but they're all over the internet and certainly available south of the border Um, it's i've had it happen to me it's incredibly painful Uh, she didn't suffer any uh, long-lasting injuries but it'll it'll it's going to stop you for sure and he left with her car and her cell phone and the car is still outstanding so I hadn't heard that, that the whole idea about, you know, someone asking you for a cigarette might be a precursor to a mugging. We did hear that couple downtown last week who were uh, assaulted badly. And it started off with, I think, a question of what time is it, which would prompt the person to then pull out your cell phone. So if you're in a certain area or sorry, if you're getting a certain question asked or being approached by someone, that might be an indicator. But the idea that there's a certain type of crime only happens in specific pockets or neighborhoods in the city, this obviously shows that's not true. Again, that carjacking was in South St. Vital at Meadowwood and St. Mary's. And so the message from police is that they can happen anywhere at any time. I think Carver goes on in that same conversation to suggest that you should do something if you hear hear that question. Yeah, here's what he had to say. Situational awareness is, is key and people need to start thinking about where are they? Are they alone? Who's around them? Are they starting to get close to you? Uh, are, what's their body language as they're walking up to you? If someone walks up to you and you don't know them and it's in an isolated place or it's dark and asks for a cigarette, I have to tell you, uh, I'd be I'd be starting to run. I hate to say that. That's startling. Starting to run. Like if someone comes up, again, it comes back to that thing. I now have to be cynical enough to think they aren't just asking me for the time or a cigarette, which I don't have. But, you know, like that's where you were. That's where we're at. That, I, rem- I remember uh, being downtown. Or I, yeah, I guess it was in the exchange on Albert or something uh, 20 years ago. And a couple of large sort of sketchy looking guys approached me quite aggressively. They got right in my face. Hey, can I have a smoke? Because they saw me pulling out a cigarette, so I reluctantly gave them one, and they carried on. But uh, maybe if I didn't give them a cigarette, maybe I'd have gotten mugged. I don't know. I, ha- I was telling you guys the story last week. I was on the side of uh, driving um, towards Steinbach, and I'm with my kids, and it's two in the afternoon, so it's bright daylight. And a guy on the side of the road is is his vehicle's broken down, and I stopped. And I know enough. I've heard enough warnings to say. First, you shouldn't stop. You can call someone and let them know, or especially if you're female, just because you might be vulnerable. I was with my kids, and I don't know why I stopped. And I had a conversation with him just with my window barely rolled down. I called for help for him afterwards, didn't give him a ride anywhere. And the guy on the phone and the tow truck driver says to me, I said, maybe I'm just uh, gullible, but I'd like to give this guy some help. And he said, well, you're not gullible, but I will tell you the number of scams going around of somebody who's actually found a stole, uh, has found a car on the side of the road that's been left there, stranded by someone who then goes on to steal it by telling somebody else 
it's his car and he's locked his keys inside, which was this exact scenario. And I thought, really? Like, I'm just trying to be helpful. And here we are again, that being helpful gets you potentially in trouble. You've got to double think it, triple think it. You've got to be aware of your surroundings at all times. And that situational awareness that Carver discusses, and that's a, that's a terminology that I guess we have to just become more accustomed to. It, it's sort of depressing, I have to say. To hear this, and that's not why we're trying. That's not why we share this with you in the morning to depress you. It's to let you know what's going on in the community, because the police are telling us what's going on, and they're not telling us everything. I can tell you that right now. They're not telling us everything. If they're sharing this with us, and Rob Carver is comfortable telling you to contemplate running in certain situations, that's a difficult thing for him to say out loud as a police officer. I commend him for doing that. And situational awareness, where are you? Are you alone? Is it well lit? Is there an escape route? It's something police also want you to think about when it comes to the growing number of people selling items through online sites like Kijiji. It's a warning that hits home this week after Winnipeg police shared how a dad and his son were recently robbed with the accused going so far as to put a knife to the neck of a nine-year-old just to get what he wants. Diana Foxall with that frightening story. Police say the first incident happened two weeks ago. A little after 10 p.m. on September 3rd, a man responded to an online ad for an iPhone, agreeing to meet the seller outside a business on McGee Street in the West End. When the man arrived, he had his nine-year-old child with him and was confronted by the suspect who demanded his money, whipped out a knife and held it to the kid's neck. The victim handed over the cash and the suspect fled, leaving the child unharmed, at least physically. Over the next week and a half, the suspect did the same thing to other would-be buyers, meeting the victims outside the same business on McGee. One man was robbed of 800 bucks. Another victim had his own cell phone stolen as well as a few hundred dollars cash. Constable Rob Carver says the suspect was arrested on Sunday after police realized there was a trend. We have done this before. If we see this kind of pattern and we have a suspect, um, we have undercover officers who will go and set up a buy, whether they're the seller or the buyer of a particular thing. In this case, it worked very well. Carver says the officers met up with the suspect, who was again armed with a knife, and took him into custody after a short foot chase. He was prepared, I think, to use violence maybe on our officers. Luckily, we've got him in the system and he's locked up right now facing charges, but uh, this could have ended tragically for sure, even for one of our guys. The 25-year-old man is charged with four counts of robbery, possession of a weapon, and failing to comply with a court order. Yeah, I, again, like I, people, people are buying and selling stuff online all the time. The police, for that reason, uh, announced they had set up buy and sell exchange zones at Winnipeg police stations. They're marked with signs outside those stations in District 1 on Smith Street. There's one on Grant Avenue, one on Hartford, one on Dougald Road. And police officers aren't there to help you with that exchange. They're not going to meet you to make sure it goes down safely. But you are outside a police station and there's video surveillance and all the rest. So I think that's something people need to think about too when they pursue these kinds of sales. If someone's not willing to meet you outside the police station, they're probably not someone you want to meet with anyway. A text message just came in here and sort of summarizes, I think, what all three of us are feeling right now. You are starting to describe the constant thought process that police go into a situation with the, quote, situational awareness, aware of your surroundings, etc. The things that police officers need to always think about to keep themselves safe. What does that say about our society? Assume the worst. 
Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, Jeff Braun is here, Kelly Moore is here, Jeff Fortier is here, and Jeff and I were in attendance last night at Cirque du Soleil, Amaluna, under the big top, and we'll get more into how the show was coming up at 7.37, but that got us thinking about the best non-concert shows we've ever been to, because when I started thinking about it, I kind of realized, like, wow, I've been to a lot of cool shows that were not concerts, so I wanted to know what you guys have been to, so... Jeff Braun, why don't we start with you? Oh, sure. Uh, I, I was, I'll say this one's with some recency bias because it happened this summer. So at the end of my life, it might not be my favorite one. <laughs> but right now it was. Uh, it's the nerdiest thing ever. I was in Montreal. I made a special trip. I was in Ottawa anyways on vacation. I made a special trip to Montreal to watch a live podcast taping of the podcast, How Did This <laughs> Get Made? Which is uh, the podcast. It was it was set at like a theater, like much like the uh, Burton Cummings Theater. And just three improv comics. We all watch a bad movie beforehand, and then at the show, they make fun of the movie for an hour and a half. And we laugh and go home. And it's hilarious. <laughs> really? <laughs> it's worth the trip. Really? Yeah, it was you so went, much you fun. You went there just for that. I, I, well, like I said, I was in Ottawa already visiting family and friends, and Montreal's only a 90-minute ro- sure. drive down the road, so I made my brother-in-law take me. <laughs> of all the things I thought you'd say, the taping of a live podcast is the best show ever is not one of it them. It was so much fun. And it's not even out on podcasts because they were on tour and they only put out an episode every couple of weeks, so it might not come out till Christmas time. So. Wow. It's exciting. Kelly Moore? Uh, I I can't remember the names of them, but I've been to a couple of Cirque du Soleil shows down in Vegas. Which hotels do you remember? Uh... Uh, uh, what's the one right by the Luxor? Uh, that would be the airport. Mandalay, Mandalay Bay. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was at that one, and then um, uh, you know, and it was just a few years ago. But uh, uh, I can't remember where the hotel was. But it doesn't matter. That both shows were absolutely superb, and uh, Cavalia was uh, really special because it happened here in Winnipeg. We went to that twice. Hmm. Did you really? Yes. Odiseo. Odiseo. Yeah. One of our listeners uh, agreeing with you on that one. Hands down, Gavilia Odiseo, best non-concert I have been to. Jerry Seinfeld's got a couple votes here. People who have seen him, one of our texters saying they've seen him twice and would go again. Same here. That he was that good. Yep. Yeah, I think uh, for me, well, and one of our listeners also saying the best uh, show they've ever been to was Cirque du Soleil O, which is in the Bellagio in Las Vegas. That's the one where the stage can, like, transform into a pool, like the the floor drops and it mm-hmm. fills with water. And uh, that was so surreal, and it was incredible. It was also my first Cirque du Soleil show, so uh, I would probably admit there's some bias there, too, because it was my first Cirque experience. I loved that Curios, the Cabinet of Curiosities they had under the big top a couple of years ago. And then... Uh, I think maybe uh, the Book of Mormon at the Centennial Concert Hall. I saw that in New York and I could not stop. I saw it again in Winnipeg, but it was so funny and so edgy. And like every time I I was shocked that they said the things they said and then couldn't stop laughing about it afterwards. It was amazing. Oh, yeah. Come From Away, too. Remember that? Yeah, that was going to be my answer because I was watching and pulling clips uh, from that. We were talking about 9-11 and the uh, integral part that story has to the Canadian legacy of 9-11. And I was just, I pulled a couple of clips and I was getting chills and getting teary just remembering how I felt the night I saw that show. Super powerful story. Lots of pride there. It's got all the elements that'll turn you into a puddle, I think. Uh, how about you, Jeff Forche? For me, uh, for when it comes to play, I saw uh, Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons, uh, Jersey Boys, that's what it's called. Saw that in Chicago, which is really great. And actually, a texter totally uh, shocked my memory that uh, I went and saw the Blue Man Group 
in Chicago as well. And the theater was like built for them. So you had all these pipes and stuff going oh, everywhere. Wow. And like they had paint throwing out into the audience. Did and you was, get wet? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was so cool. It was an absolute great memory that I have. Yeah, they, they were very good. I've seen them also. Excellent show. I think some of your best memories sometimes come for those things that you wouldn't normally do. Like when someone says, come with me to this, and you're like, I'm not interested in that type of music, or I don't like ballet, or I don't like that. And you always always find yourself surprised yeah, by what you Yeah, that was part of high school. So. Right. You would never have normally chosen that experience. Or it could be who you're with. Yeah, we've got uh, so many text messages coming in here. Um, somebody <coughs> says, okay, yeah, so Forte mentioned the Blue Man Group. Also, best non-concert show I've been to was the RCMP Musical Ride. Oh, I've heard that. A couple that. Of times, is it good, Spectacular. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, someone said the military tattoo. They saw that in Halifax. And how about this? I'm super jealous of this one. George Carlin. It was a bucket list item. Oh, wow. No oh, yeah. kidding. I almost uh, went to that in Vegas. Oh. I was only there one night and it cost like 150 bucks. Uh, I know when we were in London, we were hoping like the Dickens that we could time our visit there with the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace because people who have seen that say it is something spectacular to, to watch as well. Hey, you should get a shameless plug-in here. If you want to go to a show that's not so much a concert, make sure you go to Superhero Showdown. Absolutely. <laughs> with the Couch Potatoes, Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra, coming up in November. Oh, come on. <laughs> I like that. I like the way you threw that in there. you got to do that shameless self-promotion. Yeah. And how about uh, from our uh, competition, uh, from the Mother Corporation, he was a national treasure, the late Stuart McLean. Someone said that they went to see Stuart McLean at the, uh, at the concert hall. And uh, boy, nobody could tell a story like he could. Uh, there's no question about that. Still, the video I watched the most, though, on my phone from my concert was the kids' Christmas concert from when they're little. <laughs> Honestly, there's nothing funnier than your kids just being confused on stage, wondering why they're there and what's going on around them. That is good times. Yeah, Darcy disagrees. My son's Christmas concert. Not. <laughs> I still, my, my youngest sat there, like, just with this look on his face, like, what am I doing here? Why is everybody looking at me? My why niece is, does that. Why is, this, why is this guy sitting so close to me? Like, he just kept looking around, like, like on stage, he was having this terrible experience, and he wondered why we would want to be part of that. It is the best. <laughs> my niece would practice super hard for all the concerts. As soon as she gets up there, just stage fright, just like a deer in the headlights. Just stared the whole time. Never sang a word. I love that. Adam Big Hill, Winnipeg Blue Bombers, congratulations are in order. For the yeah, big man. absolutely. And congratulations to Ted Wyman, who's a, a regular contributor on the pregame show here on 680 CGB on our coverage of the Blue Bombers. And here's the headline from the Winnipeg Sun and Ted Wyman's article. Uh, big Hill's son, Bo, in the best of hands after being born with bilateral cleft lip and palate. I just want to read the first couple lines here, Loren, before we bring our guest on. Adam Bighill walked off the field after practice yesterday with his wife, Christina, son, AJ, uh, that's short for Adam Jr., daughter, Leah, and newborn baby, Bo, all at his side. Christina carried little Bo, born at 8 pounds, 14 ounces, last Thursday in a snuggly while the other two toddlers ran happily between their smiling mom and dad on the turf at IG Field. Here's uh, Adam Big Hill says, he's as healthy 
as can be, and from our eyes, he's as perfect as he can be. Uh, Big Hill, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers star middle linebacker, said of his newest son, about 20 weeks into Christina's pregnancy, the Big Hills got the news that the baby would be born with a bilateral cleft lip and palate. It's the very same condition Adam was born with and has spent a lifetime working to overcome. The couple new genetics made this a possibility, but it was still not easy news for them to hear. Adam Big Hill has, of course, been known for what he does and what he talks about off the field as much as he, as he does on the field. And one of those things is the fact that he can very much relate to his son and what his son will go through in the years ahead. He was bullied as a youngster because of his facial disfigurement. He's talked about that often to other youth. And he also works with a charity known as Making Faces. And that's where we want to turn the conversation now with Michael Williams Stark, who is the founder and facilitator of Making Faces. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, loved ones. How's everybody today? We're pretty good. Yeah, we'd love to hear more about your organization. Let's start with that. What does Making Faces do? Well, uh, I myself was born with the bilateral cleft lip and palate, and uh, which meant I was facially uh, different and vocally distorted. And I ended up <laughs> majoring in theater and becoming a voiceover actor. So. Um, Basically, what I use is acting tools, improv comedy tools to uh, build life skills for uh, children that are born with facial differences. So, I mean, that's an incredible story all on its own, uh, leaving even Adam Big Hill out of this and, and what he's accomplished and how, you know, he has uh, shared with us over the years the idea that, that he, he took that inner turmoil, that bullying, and, and sort of used it as motivation. But for those unfamiliar, what is bilateral cleft lip and palate? Well, at uh, the time of my birth, uh, I was t- I'm told I was the most severe case in British Columbia when I was born, although I don't have a trophy to prove it, but that's what I was told. And uh, it, my top lip basically was missing, and uh, I had a huge hole in the roof of my mouth, and uh, at, which took many, many surgeries over the years. Uh, and in my case, this is uh, you know, a long time ago now, so the surgeries went way on into my teens and adulthood, whereas nowadays a lot of the work is done uh, quite early. That work has changed things, I'd like to think, for kids compared to uh, when you were born um, a few decades ago, Michael, in terms of what surgeries you can get and how more, how much more help is out there. Is that the case in the sense of it can be better now than it was then? Definitely. A lot of the work is done so early, and uh, and it's incredible um, Sometimes with the surgeries, you can't even tell that there was any difference at all in the child. Uh, so, yeah, they, they've done fantastic work. And there in Winnipeg, you have a great crew and you got the uh, Health Sciences Center, which is an amazing facility. So I think our little bow is in great hands. Now, when you work with kids who have these differences, um, is it? do you ever find it hard to, to prop up their spirits? Like, Do they ever just feel despair? You know, I, no. Usually, they're they're gung ho. They're ready to to give it. So um, we have a lot of fun together. And um, I I find for me that it reminds me a lot of my youth, and I end up reliving a lot of things, or or it reminds me of what my parents had to go through uh, with me. But the kids themselves are usually ready to tear it up, and uh, they really do keep me on my toes. Um, you know, I'm always amazed at their resilience and just how creative they are. 
Michael, what were some of the things you had to go through? Well, for me, it was just, um, I, I was very alone in it. I never knew anybody with a facial difference. So uh, it, it was just the, the pressure of every day, stepping out the door and wondering, am I going to have to fight? Uh, you know, to have, taking a route where I might run into the least amount of people. Uh, luckily, I was born in the era of uh, Beatlemania. So luckily, I, I found a love for music and playing in rock and roll bands. And I think really singing all that time really helped develop my voice and whatnot. But uh, I think that the secret is to find something that, that interests you and that you love. And that'll, you know, allows you to pursue you pursue your dreams. But uh, yeah, for me, it was a very lonely uh I had friends, don't get me wrong, and a lovely family, but uh, I didn't know anybody else that was going through this, so I found it quite a lonely journey. And it's not just you. I've read comments from you in the past where you talk about how your sister and you learned years later that she would try to help out with the neighbor who had kids that would tease you and push you on the swing, and she said that she told you years later that's what she learned what a broken heart was, that her heart broke for you. Yeah, my elder sister, Frankie, she's great. She's still... Still my protector. Um, yeah, she said I was about two and on a swing, and she was pushing me, and all these kids came around and were just making fun of me. And, you know, just a little toddler, I didn't know what was going on. And she said that's the day she discovered what a broken heart was. Oh. So, yeah, it was difficult for her, too. Obviously power to, powerful to have a, a mentor and a face uh, and a powerful figure like Adam Bighill associated with this. But we're out of time, Michael, but uh, please promise you'll come and visit us uh, again, okay? And if you're in Winnipeg, sure. we'd love to sit down with you face-to-face to talk more about making faces. I would be honoured to be there, and thanks, everybody. Michael William Stark, founder, facilitator of Making Faces, after Adam Bighill's son, Bo, born this week with a bilateral cleft lip and palate. Adam Bighill from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, his son, Bo, was born with bilateral cleft lip and palate. Yeah, as was Adam himself. And uh, shout out to our friend Ted Wyman at the Winnipeg Sun for bringing this to our attention. Eloquently written article. And uh, the article is can only be so eloquent without input from Adam Bighill himself. So we reached out to the Blue Bombers this morning and said, hey, we'd really like to talk to Adam about this. So... We did. We spoke to him about a half an hour ago, and uh, this is what he had to say about finding out that his son, Bull, was going to be born with the same affliction he was born with. At the 20-week mark in the pregnancy, we knew that he was going to be born with bilateral cleft and palate. So for, for us, initially, it was frustrating just because we didn't wish that upon anybody. And, and obviously, I've been through it. I've grown up uh, with the challenges. I know what it's all about. Um, it's not easy. Uh, lots of surgeries involved and, you know, just, you know, issues with confidence and being able to feel like you're just like anyone else. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I had a lot of great family support. And, you know, I know that the challenges I faced growing up definitely have helped make me become who I am, you know, giving me, you know, extra drive and motivation to to be different, to, you know, prove people wrong and so forth. So, um, you know, for me, I think it was very powerful, even though it was probably my biggest challenge. It's interesting that it became my biggest tool as well. And, you know, just for our son, Bo, I mean, no better person to help lead him through life than me, of someone who's dealt with it. And, um, you know, I mean, we realize it's going to be challenges, but I mean, you know, already he's doing so good with eating and feeding and, 
you know, we're already very optimistic on how well he's going to be able to handle things. I think you hit it. There is no better person to lead him through his life than you. But at the same time, because you're such an incredible person, the credit has to go to your parents as well in terms of stations they may have had with you when you're, you were younger. What lessons or words did they use that you will share with Bo now going forward? Well, I mean, some of the things I firmly remember, like my dad saying, was that, you know, like God gave you this challenge in front of you, uh, but he also gave you extreme athletic talents as a way to make up for it. You know, for something I didn't have, I got something else. Um, you know, it said that to me when I was about seven or eight years old. And, you know, I firmly believe that. Um, but other than that, I mean, he just, he just, you know, treated me like I was normal and, and really, you know, gave me and helped me learn life lessons that I think anybody should learn, you know, never quit, never stop. You know, if you're going to do anything, do it to your very best and, you know, always make a positive impact with everybody you meet. Um, you know, those are some of the some of the early lessons I learned from my father and my parents that, um, you know, just helped build you as a, as a human being. And, um, you know, so those things went a long way as well. You know, I, I hear you loud and clear. Sometimes the worst thing that that you might imagine happening to you does happen. And then somehow, some way, it does end up being in the long run the best thing. But you don't necessarily want your kids to learn those lessons the same way. You'd be forgiven if you didn't have this positive attitude about this. But but here you are uh, carrying that positive attitude. Why come public with it? Why why talk about it so openly and and freely? You're not obligated to do this in in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I mean, well, I think the fact is, you know, one in seven hundred. Ch- uh, children are born with a cleft of some sort. So it, it's more common than we might think. I grew up only knowing one other person, um, but I came from a smaller area. So, I mean, it's more common than I ever do. Um, and at the same time, you know, I want to be able to help use my platform to give hope, awareness, um, encouragement um, to others going through the same situation. Um, just to let them know my story, my path, how I became who I am today and and really what the work we do with making faces to ensure that children growing up with facial differences have, you know, uh, outlets for help and support, and we want to be there for them. Um, you know, so stuff like that, I mean, it's super important. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, people were going to find out Bo has a plus up about it when they see him, uh, you know, if they're going by, and why not just put it out there right now so everybody understands and everybody is more aware of the situation um, that is a, quite a common issue. We were talking with Michael, with co-founder of Making Faces, and he talked about the idea that he was born with a facial difference and also affected how he talked, and he grew up to become, you know, an, a stage actor and a voiceover, did voiceovers for commercials and all the rest, and, and really owned the situation. For any parent that's out there or kid that's listening that might have any sort of thing that has them thinking, oh, I don't feel the same, or I wish I did, or, or anything like that, what's your one piece of advice? Well, to me, the, the piece of advice is that there's so many more people like you that you don't even know, and there's and there's no reason why you can't be as successful any, as anyone else in this world, and and have the confidence that anybody else in this world has just because you have a facial difference. So, those are the main things we see. When you have a facial difference, you have less generally children and people have less confidence based on you know their interactions growing up with people, and and um, we want to make sure we can help build that confidence and let everyone know that you should have that confidence because, um, you know, you're no different than anyone else. You have the right to and the ability to be with whoever and whatever you want to be. 
Adam, you and Christina are such a terrific part of our community. We're so glad uh, that you're here, not only playing football, but uh, it feels like you're really becoming Winnipeggers. That means a lot to us here. Yeah, no, we uh, we 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 enjoy being here. I mean, we're going to be here year round now, and you know, uh, having another job here in offseason as an investment advisor and and being able to really be, be become a part of the Winnipeg community officially is, is fantastic. Well, we appreciate you making some time for us this morning. Congratulations again, and good luck in Montreal on Saturday afternoon. Thanks for the time, guys. Appreciate you. Adam Bighill from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers joining us on 680 CJOB. Congratulations once again to Adam and his family for welcoming Bo into the family. Yeah, Christina and Adam have just been such a welcome addition to our community and we were discussing just this whole idea. You know, we've met Emily Bufflin. We've had her mm-hmm. in our studio here. And Loren, I think you've met her over the years. And, and Dustin Bufflin's become a big part of this community. He's a very quiet guy, but he goes about things uh, quietly. We've seen pictures of him and heard reports of him uh, doing the ice fishing thing in different parts of the province and always kind to people when he bumps into them. And uh, we have this relationship with our athletes or professional athletes in the city. And so when something like what came out yesterday, uh, Patrick Line suggesting that if he played somewhere other than Winnipeg, right away, everybody gets their backup. Mm-hmm. Not everybody, but enough people that it feels like it, it's enough of the population that that you don't like it here, then leave. Then right? leave. Yeah. And so it's maybe not a consensus or a quorum of people, but enough that... People who don't feel that way are sensing it and are like, come on, can you like chill out with that rhetoric? Uh, We don't need to talk that way. So it's refreshing when we get to to speak on such a personal level with someone like Adam Big Hill about the inspiration he is to other people off the field, away from football, uh, even though uh, as he confesses to us, the 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 trade that he feels God made for him was he was going to give him one gift in exchange for one challenge. And when you hear someone put it that way and so precisely and to feel it, believe it and live it, it it's very empowering, I think, to all of us. At least it should be in my mind. And I think it was so great you asked the question. You know, you're not obliged to come out here and talk about this. This is your personal life. And he's choosing to make his personal life public so that other people can benefit from that. And that's uh, another good listen- lesson. If... If you have something in your life that's a struggle or a challenge, is there a way to turn at least part of it into a positive? And that's that's what he's doing. Yeah, I think he, he realizes that if somebody else is dealing with the very same thing or something completely different that can be assimilated, then it's worthwhile for him to share that part of him. And uh, I commend him and his family for coming forward a million percent. Jeff Braun is here because Jeff was one of many in attendance last night at Cirque du Soleil Amaluna. I was there. Tristan Field-Jones was my guest. Jeff Braun was there. Julie Buckingham was there. Richard Cloutier was there. A cast of thousands to take in. What was a pretty cool show. Jeff, what did you think of it? Yeah, it was it was wild. I'd never been to anything like that before. And, uh, you know, it's acrobatics and stuff. I, I With that and with equestrian events and with figure skating, I'm mostly nervous the whole time. For the other ones that they'll 
fall and maybe hurt themselves. But with the Cirque people, it's just like, well, if they fall, they're going to die. So <laughs> that does take some of the fun away for, for me. I just I just can't relax. But it was pretty – I was very impressed with what I saw. I, I'm, I'm sore this morning having watched them last night. And I can't imagine how they feel. You mean like you were tense the whole time or what? Yeah. <laughs> You've never been to a Cirque show? No. Oh, cool. Did you go to Cavalia when it was under the big yeah. top? Okay. Yeah, well, and one of the, th- the the cool things about this particular show is uh, when I saw this in the rehearsal on Thursday, they have the uh, the Valkyries, these uh, artists who are up in the, those they call them the aerial straps, you know, those things that they kind of wrap around their body and whatnot, and they're just swinging around this stage like Spider-Man. Right over the audience and stuff, there's, yeah. there's no net. Uh, it is. It's just incredible. Um, the And the cool thing with those Cirque shows too, Jeff, is they the way that they temper the tempo like they they have something big and you know aerials huge music and then they calm it down with their little interludes like the I guess the equivalent of clowns right they're mm-hmm. clowns uh, you've been to Cirque shows Loren mm-hmm. yeah they it's a, a interesting pace because just when you think you've seen it all and that must be the peak part of the performance because they do those con- like those interludes, as you call them. Then something else will come out, and you'll be like, "Whoa, that's even better than the last thing that just happened." So you kind of on this high, high, low, high, low thing, like a roller coaster. You must have been nervous then, Jeff, when they did that that thing. I guess, for lack of a better term, on a teeter totter, where the guys were jumping up and down. On yeah, the, so the, doing like, flips and stuff. Yeah, so like imagine two guys instead of sitting on a teeter totter, they were jumping. On it and shooting like twenty feet into the air, doing backflips and nose dives. And then at first, the teeter totter was hidden. It was like because there were just had it was surrounded by set decoration. I was like, oh, they got little trampolines back there because these guys were flying up. And then they moved the things away and they're doing it on just back and forth on the teeter totter. I was like, that's insane. Yeah. So how many times do you break your ankle before you get good at that? Like. I wonder. And, well, and I spoke with Laís Camila, who is one of the aerial strap artists, uh, last week, and she says she's never hurt herself. Really? And she, like, her main skill is in the air. So I would think, like, it would just come with the territory. You must have been hurt. No. She said, knock on wood, I've never been hurt. She feels safer in the air than on the ground. She says, <laughs> if someone asked her to do a backflip, uh, she would freak out, but in the air, no problem. Interesting. That is yeah. fascinating. Yeah. I, get to, I guess you got to have, like, a mindset of like that or something sure. just, you know, out in left field compared to everyone else to be able to do that sort of thing. Now, Willie Jefferson did a backflip uh, <laughs> in celebration of a big play during the Banjo Bowl. I wonder if they could get him up in uh, the Cirque du Soleil. I think he could probably... Wait until after yeah, the Yeah, we don't season. need to hear about <laughs> oh, anyway. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Not till after the season, Willie, if you're listening this morning. That was not an invitation or a suggestion, just a just a thought out loud. I also like the heavy metal band they had at this show. Was, uh, oh, come on. Yeah, it was cool. And it was loud. Yeah. And they were shredding on guitars. It was fun. And Tristan Field-Jones, who's a big music fan, he picked up on all kinds of things with the musical score that I didn't. He was, well, I did notice one of the songs sounded like Coldplay's uh, Viva La Vida, I think is what it's called. And uh, there was another moment where I, it's, he said it sounded like Queensryche. So he was really into, he described the musical score as like a, a concept album where each side of the, the album is just one huge song. So that was interesting too. If you're into music, then you'll like the score. And uh, I even picked up, maybe, did you catch, the, it sounded like Mission Impossible. Like there was this one, oh, really? this one moment where that, that woman was putting together this huge 
I don't know. What would you call that thing? I don't that you know put what together? that was. It was just she had balancing a, sticks on sticks on sticks on sticks. Yeah, it was, she was making this sort of shrine, this kind of tribute, and I, I, it had to have been at least thirty feet long and just wrapped around her, and it was held like by a thread because when she finally knocked it over, she just kind of went poke, and it fell apart. It yep. took like ten minutes, and it was just <laughs> gripping. Watch her trying to put this thing together. Is that she was probably the it? most tense part of the whole show. Yeah. It's so, like, oh, is it going to fall apart? Oh, is she going to drop it? Yeah, no, I will say I liked Cabinet of Curiosities, Curios, better than this one. I uh, just, but because they did that thing where they were eating dinner. Yes, upside down. Upside down. That was spectacular. But this was still a great show. So here's the question. You know, every time I've gone to any kind of show like this, I think they can't do, like, what's left to do. And I'm curious, like, who is in the back scenes? What meetings are they having? I know what, what we could do What substance next. are they taking? <laughs> So, like, <laughs> let their mind go to a place like, I, I wonder what we can do next. I thought that about Cavalia. Like, who who, who thought to, to put these horses and have the water and have the tent and all those kinds of things? Like, the places people, their imaginations can go is, whew. That's why I was it first. That's why I like going to these shows, because it's just amazing to see what human beings are capable of sure. when it comes to artistry. And I would add that, even though I liked Curios better, I would say this was the more beautiful show. I think this one was far more elegant. Uh, Curios had a steampunk thing. It was very kind of industrial. Uh, so this was a good show. The one thing, though, I will say is, and Jeff and I had <laughs> po- po- diametric opposite experiences. <laughs> The parking situation at that big top is horrific, depending on, and it's a crapshoot. It just depends where they funnel you because you pull in and on then the they just in. direct you. Sure. Yeah. I had, and I ended up beside a fence, so I knew I was screwed. Were you we were early or were you late? We were early and we, they shoved us at the far, far end of the parking lot. And I was like, oh, this is going to suck later. Well, what time did you get there? Six forty. Okay, yeah, I got like the, that. I got there at seven fifteen. And yeah, and I thought, well, we're screwed after the thing. But I was like, whatever, we'll worry about that later. And worst case scenario, we'll just sit in the car and wait. There's nothing you can do. But then they like just opened this gate that was right by where we parked that wasn't open when we came in, and they just they just waved us through. We were out of there immediately. Maybe ninety seconds in the parking. Whereas lot. I was in the parking lot for thirty minutes. We didn't move for fifteen. We got to the car as quickly as possible, got moving, and then we just sat for fifteen minutes, and then another five minutes, and another five minutes. Guys were screaming and swearing, <laughs> honking, just a chorus of. Hon- Tristan was asking me questions. I'm trying to answer them. I couldn't because people were honking left and right. They were so That's disorganized. So I they- don't know. In our section, there were I counted six people. When the last part of the act went up, all of a sudden, people got up and just took off. And I was like, what are they, trying to beat the traffic and leaving the show early? Beat and the traffic. Know. Beat, beat I don't the know. traffic. And somebody must have told them when the last part uh-huh. of the show was or whatever so they could beat it. But I was just like, it was. I know Winnebago's like to beat traffic. Uh, That's a weird thing to try to I, beat traffic. I on. agree. Yeah, that situation there, one way in, one way out. It, they Very organized on the way in, but it was terribly disorganized on the way out. But overall, great experience, if you don't mind sitting in the parking lot. Depending on where you park, it's a wonderful experience. Go see Cirque du Soleil. Amaluna. One week down, four and a half to go. (laughs) That's where we are at in the federal election campaign that's already seen party leaders crisscrossing the country. Yesterday, conservative leader Andrew Scheer was in town and in our studios for an interview. And you can bet when or perhaps if Justin Trudeau lands in Winnipeg, (laughs) we will be asking him for a similar interview here on CGOB. And of course, we'll press him on his promises, just like we did Andrew Scheer, and also those questions on the SNC-Lavalin scandal. 
It's all part of an important decision that has many in this country divided. Polls show the conservatives and liberals are neck and neck. Conversations around the supper table might even pit mom against dad or brother against sister. So if you're at that table, or if you're 10 or 12 or 14 years old, what are you thinking? What have you been taught so far when it comes to elections? And if that conversation isn't happening at home, is it happening at school? Devin King is a grade 9 English and social studies teacher at Sisler High School, and he loves elections so much, he's been putting a regular podcast out on them. Should I be saying democracy is good? Right. That's, and that's, that's an excellent question, right? Because I think ultimately, what are we talking about when we talk about democracy? That was Devin King speaking with an education coordinator with Elections Canada as part of his podcast. Devin's in studio with us now. Good morning and thanks for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Maybe the question is, do you love elections that much or do you love teaching that much that you'd bring someone in to try to figure out a way to best teach our kids? Uh, it, it can be both. Uh, it's, it's picking your ch- children. You know, uh, I love elections and I love teaching. It's, it's a combination of the two. Oh, you can't pick a favorite. I see. <laughs> What's the challenge here in terms of keeping your own opinions out of it at the appropriate time? but also bringing your passion to it at a different time. There's, there's got to be a balance there. And, and are, you, are you struggling with that constantly or have you got it sorted out more or less? It, it is literally zero challenge because uh, there's a really important difference between what I think and the way we elect governments and the way that we come to our own individual opinions. So bringing my, and, and here's the thing, we all have our own biases. It would be foolish of me to say that I have no bias. Anyone who says they are neutral probably is kidding themselves. Uh, so it's a matter of bringing that uh, to the classroom, but checking it at the door and then getting into what really matters, uh, what students' ideas are and what their questions are and addressing those in the classroom. Because ultimately, uh, I'm not there to say, this is what I believe. You should believe it too. Uh, it's a matter of what are you all thinking? Uh, what do you believe and what does that mean for Canada? Are, are you, as part of that discussion, how to have a conversation about things that you disagree upon? Uh, I don't know that we necessarily need to talk about how to do it. Sometimes that might come up, but I find that students are uh, pretty respectful about these things. And we can talk about disagreeing about different parties and what our beliefs are and whether or not we share them. And sometimes students will disagree with that. Uh, Honestly, less about the politics uh, or the parties, but more about the things that they believe in. So, for example, there are some students who will really value environmental issues, uh, climate crisis. And someone else might say, well, that's not that important. And for them, it's not about the parties necessarily. It's more about the, the real issues that are affecting their own lives. So is this part of the curriculum throughout the year in terms of there's a section on democracy or a section on elections? Or do you use an event like the federal election or, or a past provincial election as a launching point for that conversation? It is part of the grade nine curriculum. It's uh, around 25% of it. So um, when an election hits, it's, a, it's really perfect because it makes some of that abstract idea very tangible. So in that in the curriculum, we're looking at the electoral process. We're looking at what different parties stand for, the fact that there are different parties and they have different ideas and that different kinds of ideas can be good for a country. Uh, but then also looking at uh, the structure of our democracy and the structure of our parliament and how uh, we have three different, uh, uh, we have the judicial and we have the legislative, executive and, and what their rules are. And there's a lot in there to cover and an election is a really good opportunity to get into all of that in a tangible way. What's their level of understanding going in? 
Um, I think you could ask that same question of what's their level of understanding in math or science. Um, ultimately, that is kind of a non-issue for me because my job as a teacher is regardless of their level of understanding to get them to a level where they are functioning as what we would say a, a grade nine citizen would be. So some come in very obviously having conversations at the dinner table about what they believe. And some of them come in having seen an ad on YouTube about a political party, and that's their frame of reference, and we discuss that. And some of them come in not knowing who the prime minister is. And that's, you know what, kind of okay, because mm-hmm. ultimately that is my job, to teach them. And, and then we come to that. A lot of might... adults might not know the answer to that question too, right? <laughs> I, I mean... think that's a perfect probably uh, frame of reference in terms of the overall population. You have that same you same that level of engagement. But I think people who imagine that they're grade six, seven, eight-year-old uh, kids are not talking about this stuff or are kidding themselves. A lot of them are talking about these things, not just in the classroom. They're talking about it on the playground and with one another at, at uh, private times, at lunch, etc. My suspicion is that uh, we might be uh, misjudging playground conversation. I'm not sure that they're having political conversations in grade six on the playground. Oh, I can tell you they are. Oh, okay. as, a, as a parent, I can tell you they are. But my suspicion is that it's happening more online. Uh, and I think... Of the ads that are coming out online, based on what my students are saying, that's where they see political ads. And so oh, in, sure. in, in my mind, uh, those conversations about politics are happening probably in the moment when they see that uh, or internally in their own uh, in their own selves just to uh, understand what it means to them. Do you find that that's changed? You've been teaching for 10 years. Uh, and I, I sometimes wonder with those playground conversations how much Donald Trump might weigh into it over something else or what they see on TV <laughs> or what they get online. Has that uh, awareness or conversation changed in the 10 years or are we engaged or as disengaged as we've perhaps always been? As a teacher, part of what you're looking at, what you're thinking about is how we assess. So in that question, we need to first parse out, and this is the boring part for anyone listening, um, how do we assess that success? What does that look like? So I've had students uh, in the past who have uh, gone on to become leaders in the community and, and, and have run for office. And so am I judging it based on something like that? Am I judging it based on uh, the conversations in the classroom? Because uh, not everyone feels comfortable talking. We don't know what's going on in their heads. Am I basing it on writing? Well, not everyone is a skilled writer. So it's really a uh, a bigger process of looking at different ways that students might be engaged. In brief, what I'd say is I think students have gotten a lot smarter. I think they've gotten um, more engaged and at least more aware. And I think we're expecting them to be more engaged. And so uh, they are rising to meet that challenge more and more. Devin King is a grade nine English and social studies teacher at Sisler High School. Devin, thanks for coming in. We appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.